We are in the book of Philemon. We're in Philemon this afternoon. This is part four of our series, part four through our journey through this excellent little book of 25 verses. Now, if you're here new for the very first time tonight, or this is the first message in Philemon that you're hearing, some of this may be strange. I am not going to do my, my normal introduction dealing and accounting for the issues of slavery in this book. And so I'd encourage you to maybe go back and, and listen to last week's sermon, at least the first 10 minutes, to get this introduction. Because I know without it, it, it may make this issue of slavery seem very strange and peculiar. But for the sake of brevity, we, we must press forward. Now what I will tell you uh, is this. Paul is writing this letter sometime between 60 in 62 AD, he's writing this from Rome. He's in prison. This is his first Roman imprisonment or house arrest. And he's writing this letter to a man named Philemon, a man that he seems very personally acquainted with. A man, by all accounts, that he's met some years earlier while in the ancient city of Ephesus. And it was there in Ephesus that many believe and suppose that Philemon became a Christian through Paul's work and ministry and teaching of the gospel. Now, since this time, we don't really know a whole lot about Philemon, other than he is a part of the local church there in the city of Colossae. And he hosts the church at Colossae in his home. So many leads many to assume that he has some degree of wealth to be able to do that. But the issue in this story deals with Philemon's runaway slave, Onesimus. Onesimus has defrauded Philemon, fled Philemon, by all accounts, according to verse 18, potentially stolen from Philemon, traveled some nearly 1,000 miles to Rome, and while in Rome, he gets saved. He becomes a Christian. He meets Paul. And Paul begins to disciple him. As we saw last week, they forged a very close and intimate relationship. Onesimus is like a son, has become like a son to Paul. Now one of the underlying themes that runs from verse 1 to 25 is that of forgiveness and restoration. Onesimus has wronged Philemon. Philemon's been deeply hurt. He's been betrayed. Trust has been, been broken. And Paul doesn't want that. Paul wants reconciliation, and so he makes the difficult decision to send Onesimus back. Sends him back, along with the letter, bearing Philemon's name, to come to Philemon. And that is where we pick up today's story. In verse 15. Now one of the questions that's been asked many times, at least at the Tuesday night small group, is why? Where's Henry at? He knows that I promised him a shout out tonight. But he's asked a really good question. Henry asked this question, I think, after the first sermon. He said, Joe, if Philemon was this upstanding Christian guy that Paul paints for us in this story, why would Onesimus leave? Why? Why would he leave? And I I think we can speculate. We can speculate and say, well, 
We know that slaves, as we discussed last week from the region of Phrygia, had a notoriously bad reputation as slaves in general. Maybe that's why. Or maybe it's the fact that we know that before this letter was written, Onesimus was not a Christian. And perhaps he was acting on those impulses of total depravity to to make this decision to act on this. Why? And we can speculate, and I think any of those probably be decent speculations to make. I don't think there's necessarily anything untrue about saying that, but what does the Bible say? Why would Onesimus leave? Why would Philemon experience this pain, this hurt, this betrayal from someone who really was there, part of his household? Why? Well, those whys are difficult questions, but I will do my best to answer that. This is what verse 15 says. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while. For this perhaps is why he, Onesimus, was parted from you, Philemon, for a while. That you might have him back forever. This is why, Philemon, that in being parted from Onesimus, you might have him back forever. Now, that's not a false statement. It's true, because the Bible clearly says it's true. But is that it? Is that all? You get to have him back forever? Now, does that answer the question of why? Why would Onesimus leave? I'm not sure that it does. It gives us the result, the, the purpose But clearly, that would not have been Onesimus' motivation to leave. He wouldn't have said, well, if I leave, if I defraud Philemon, if I potentially steal from him, according to verse 18, if I do all this, well then, I do all this with the end result in mind that I get to come back. So, it's not false. Have him back forever. I, I just don't know that that's all of it. Back to the text, verse 15. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever. Now look at was parted. Was parted or was separated. Maybe your your translation says that. Was parted. Got this passive verb working. Not future, not you will be parted, not present. You, you, You are is part of, but was part of this passive verb. This is significant. I'll read a direct quote from Douglas Moo in his Pillar New Testament commentary because this is a really pivotal part of where I'm going. The passive verb was parted or was separated in the original language is widely and in our view correctly viewed as divine passive. That is, a passive verb in which God is the implied agent. So what's the why? Why would this happen? Well, if we understand this to be a divine passive in which God is the implied agent, we understand this text as Paul saying, God's the one doing the party. God's the one doing the separating. 
for this amazing purpose that you get to have this brother in faith, brother in Christ, come back to you forever. More on forever in a moment. Now, that only makes sense. That result statement, you might have him back forever, that statement only makes sense if God is the implied agent, the one doing the parting, the one doing the separating. Because if God's not the implied agent doing the parting, doing the separating, you have to answer the question, well, then who is doing the parting and separating for this magnificent purpose to bringing them back together? Onesimus? Is he the one doing the parting? Is he the one doing doing this? To a certain extent, yes. Clearly, he's, he's made some bad choices. But clearly, he would not have ha- had the, the, dare I say, divine insight to be motivated to make these actions based on the end result that Paul gives to Philemon. He says, God is the one doing the parting. God is the one doing the separating. Paul seeks to give Philemon comfort to Henry's question of why, not based off secondary causes. But Onesimus, he made bad decisions. He's responsible. That's true. But Paul doesn't seek to give comfort to Philemon based off secondary causes. He seeks to give comfort to Philemon based off the ultimate cause. God was doing this parting. God was doing this separating for a God-honoring purpose. That you would have this brother come back. He didn't leave as a brother. He's coming back as a brother. And if this at all reminds you of another Bible story, well, then you're in good company for thinking that way. If this reminds you at all of the story of Joseph, you're in good company. Every single book I pulled off the shelf by people who have differing opinions all pointing to the story of Joseph at this point in the story of Philemon as a comparable example in which God, think about the story of Joseph, in which God is at work through a series of apparently random and even evil events for his good. The hurt and the pain that Philemon has experienced on the part of someone he trusted. Paul seeks to give him hope in saying that Philemon, God ultimately was why this occurred and it occurred for a a God-honoring purpose. This is why oftentimes I borrow the illustration from Piper when he says, "In, in these moments... It may seem like God's like a firefighter who's merely responding to these Philemon and Onesimus-like conditions in our lives, apparently random to us, but rather he should be seen as a surgeon who carefully plans every detail, every incision, every cut. No doubt that sometimes it's uncomfortable and that it hurts, but he does so for our good and his glory. Hard to see it, right? I imagine, remember, Philemon's reading this letter. Onesimus is probably standing here, and he's trying to still make sense of this whole situation, trying to maybe answer the very question that Henry brought up in small group. Why? And why is a hard question. 
not just for the story of Philemon and Onesimus, but it's a hard question to answer, especially when it pertains to our own lives or the lives of people we love and care about. Why should this happen? Why should my friend stab me in the back, Philemon? Why? Why should this happen? I used to say this up until about, I don't know, six or seven years ago. I used to say, well, I don't know why. This would be my typical response. I don't know why, but what I do know is that while God didn't cause it, he can use it for his good. That was like my go-to answer. I pull out of my lunchbox. Like, I don't know why, but I do know that while God didn't cause this, and this is a negative thing, bad thing, calamity, whatever, hurt, pain, he can use it for his good. That was my catchphrase. And then I was reading one day in a little 31-day devotional. I don't remember what day it was. And I came across this article. The, the caption of the devotional was this. Why I do not say God did not cause the calamity, but he can use it for his good. It just blew my mind. What? That seems strange. I'll read that. Here's the headline of the, of the devotional I read that day six or seven years ago. Change. My God went from being about, I don't know, like this big to this big. As I read this, just the title, so provocative. Why I do not say God did not cause the calamity, but he can use it for, it's good. Now, I understand why people say that, right? God didn't cause it, but he can use it for good. I know why. I know why I used to say that. Because we deny that, that God did this, whatever it is, and a negative, not so good thing. Because in denying that, we want to say that God's not a sinner. We do. And to that point, I completely agree. And then we also want to, we want to, we want to make sure that we affirm the fact that God doesn't remove human responsibility. And to that point, I completely agree. And then we also want to say that God, he's still a very good and compassionate God. And to that point, I would totally agree. Those are precious truths. And yet, how God is able to govern, as Paul says in Ephesians 1.11, all things according to the counsel of his will, and yet not sin, and yet not remove human responsibility, and yet still be compassionate, is a mystery indeed. It, it begins to bend the logic of our world. But just because it begins to bend the, the logic of the box that we've created, that's, that's, that's okay. That's okay. So this is why I don't, excuse me, this is why I don't say that anymore. This is why I no longer say, God didn't cause it, but he can use it for his good. And one of the reasons is because I don't necessarily see that taught in the Bible. And this is what I mean by that. You look at the story of Job. Job's going through some stuff that's not so good. Philemon's going through some stuff that's not so good. Job doesn't seek to find comfort in secondary causes. What do I mean by that? Secondary causes. You know, if you've read the story of Job, the beginning of the story, the devil comes. He gets permission from God to basically 
mess Job's life up. Secondary cause. But Job doesn't seek comfort in secondary causes. So when you come across a verse like Job 42.11, Job 42.11, his brothers and sisters, they show up to comfort him. And this is what the text says, and I quote, They showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. End quote. I'll say it again in case you didn't catch that. His brothers and sisters come to show him comfort, and it says this, They showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Some of you are like, is that in the Bible? It's not in my Bible, is it? Job 42.11, i gotta, I got to check this out. And we come across these verses that boggle our minds. And I'm like, well, that doesn't fit in my little logic box very neatly or nicely right now. I don't know what to do with that. I either cross it out, which I don't think that's a good idea, or somehow i got to get it fitted in here that we've created for ourselves. Why, I don't say. God didn't cause it, but he can use it for its good. Job, just like Paul, when he's trying to help Philemon make sense of this, doesn't seek to help him make sense based off of secondary causes, rather the ultimate cause as a source of hope and comfort for him. And here's the other reason why I don't say any longer, God didn't cause it, but he can use it for its good. And that is because I believe it undermines, it undermines the very hope that it seeks to offer. It undermines the very hope that it seeks to offer. And this is what I mean by that. You come and you tell me, when I've just gone through a season like Philemon or Joseph or Job or whatever, and you tell me, well, God didn't cause that, but he can use it for its good. And I say, how am I supposed to believe that? You're telling me that I'm supposed to trust God with the departure of this pain or this difficulty when the arrival was just random that it happened? How am I supposed to hope and believe in that when God could have used 10,000 prior events to have prevented it? I'm, I'm supposed to trust God with the departure of pain, but not the arrival of it? And Joe, from six or seven years ago, he would have said, well, you have to understand. You have to understand that God doesn't force anybody to do anything. Right, He respects our will so much that he wouldn't force his own will to override our will. He, would, he wouldn't do that. You say, you got a Bible verse for that? I said, no, but it just makes sense to me. In my, in my, in my logic box. And then I come across verses like Genesis 20, verse 6, that boggle my mind, and I don't know what to do with it because they're not fitting inside my logic box anymore. I look at Genesis chapter 20, verse 6, and I'll paraphrase the story like this. So Abraham, he's got this fine wife, Sarah, and, and, and he makes, he gets into a problem more than just one time, but he gets into a situation, he's going into this country, and he's worried, because if they find out this, this, this good-looking gal, that, that's his wife, man, they're going to kill him and take his wife. So he lies about it. He's afraid. He lies about it. Tells him it's his sister. And they say, oh, your sister? Oh, this works out great. Hey, why don't you come with me for a second? And the guy that took her has a dream. And this is what Genesis 20, verse 6 says. Then God said to him in the dream, the guy that took Sarah, Yes, I know you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. You took her? 
You're going to do stuff with her? I'm not letting that happen. I'm stopping you from sinning. I'm stopping you from touching her. So I didn't think God could do that. (laughs) Welcome to the Bible. Welcome. You look at Psalms 33, verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The people have a plan. He says, no, that's not happening. No, he respects them too much to interfere with their plan. He's not going to prevent that plan. That's not what the psalmist says. He frustrates the plans of the people. And so there I was seven years ago, and I'm trying to make sense of these verses. I'm like, do they go in the box or out of the box? Because the logic, the logical frame around me that I've created is about to just snap. Because my God, at this point, he's too small to fit in this box. We look at this story. Why? Henry's question, why would this have happened? Paul doesn't seek to assure Philemon based on secondary causes that we know are are, are there and certainly true. But he seeks to give him hope based on the ultimate cause, that God is the one parting, God is the one separating them. I'll read you a quote here that just illustrates this further. This is from my man John Piper. And I quote, Without the confidence that God rules over the beginning of our troubles, it is hard to believe that he could rule over their end. Without the confidence that God rules over the beginning of our troubles, it is hard to believe that he could rule over their end. He goes on to say, If we deny God his power and wisdom to govern the arrival of our pain, why should we think we can trust him with its departure? Say, I wouldn't do it like that, God, or that can't be the case. I know better than you, if we deny God his power, his wisdom to govern the arrival of our pain, why should we think we can trust him with its departure? Therefore, I don't say, well, God didn't cause that, but he can use it for its good. Because I see verses that just say the absolute opposite. Like Amos 3.6. Does disaster come to our city unless the Lord has brought it? Notice, Amos doesn't attribute the the disaster, that hurricane that blows in, to a high-pressure, low-pressure system. You know, they came together, they did this science stuff, and then it just came out. Is that true? Yeah, but that's a secondary cause. Amos says, disaster doesn't come to our city unless the Lord brings disaster. Whether it's Joseph, whether it's Amos, whether it's the story Genesis 20, verse 6, whether it's Psalms 33, whether it's Philemon, I don't think we should try to find our hope in secondary causes, rather the ultimate cause, even though in that moment it doesn't always make sense to us why that's happening, why that friend of ours just hurt us so bad and they were mean to us or, or this calamity occurs in our lives. You have a very big God. Bigger than some of you, perhaps even up until this moment, have ever really contemplated about. So contemplate that. God parted you, Philemon. God separated you, Philemon, from Onesimus. I know you're hurting. I know you've got a lot of pain you're dealing with. But God did this because God had a purpose in mind the entire time. And that was that Onesimus becomes a Christian. So Onesimus comes back to you that you get to have him forever. 
Well, he's saying, what sense forever? Like in an earthly sense or like a spiritual sense? Do I get to have him back? Like is this new and improved Onesimus 2.0? Or is it that I get to have him back as more than just that, as a fellow Christian? And we should understand forever, not in light of this world, but transcending this world in light of the world to come. I think that's clearly what Paul is saying in God's giant, magnificent, pain-filled plan. You get to have him back forever. And so we look at the next verse. No longer as a as a slave, that word bondservant, they're just being polite there, that word is slave, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So here in verse 16, he speaks about, he's coming back. This is how you should welcome him back. This is how you should receive him back. Not as a slave, more than that, as a brother, dear brother in the faith. In other words, your relationship with Onesimus is no longer going to be defined by what the world says it should be as master and slave relationship, but rather by your spiritual relationship. This is why I often say at Lynchburg City Church, we're not like a family. We are a family. Not like your, your brother, he is your brother, Philemon. And this is now how their new relationship will be defined. But you say, yet, in what sense will Onesimus be considered a brother? And there is debate on this, because Paul isn't exactly explicit in what he's asking, no doubt, as we saw last week. He wants Philemon to make the right decision. He wants him to do the right thing for the right reason, not by force or compulsion on Paul's part. Philemon, Philemon and Onesimus, could, could Philemon continue to treat Onesimus as a dear brother while continuing to be his master? It's an awkward question. If you're here for the very first time and you didn't get to hear my introduction on this, on this issue of slavery um, from last week, it, this is tough. But could Philemon continue to treat Onesimus as a dear brother while continuing to be his master? You gotta say yes. Based on Ephesians 6-9, based on Colossians 4-1, based on 1 Timothy 6-2, in which Paul instructed masters not to liberate their slaves, but treat them well and in the right way. And yet, we wonder, right? Is it compatible? Is it compatible for Philemon to continue treating Onesimus as this dear brother? And yet there's a hope that perhaps when he says, don't just receive him back as a slave, but more than a slave, that perhaps that will result in him not treating him as a slave at all. And so he compares and contrasts it. He says, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. This is the only contrast that Paul's ever made between flesh and Lord. It is a peculiar one here at the end of this passage. It's the only place in all of Scripture that he does this. And there is, honestly, ongoing debate today, just what he had in mind 
what Paul had in mind. Was Onesimus ever freed? What actually happened? More on that in sermon number five. But we close with verse 17, and this is what it says. He says, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If you consider me your partner, and that seems like maybe a strange word to say right there, like partner, like are we business partners or, or some venture capital thing going on? Like in what way is he considered a partner? Well, this partner, this word partner is very similar to the word back in verse 6 that he uses uh, sharing. The sharing of your faith in verse 6, or the partnership of your faith. A lot of similarities, probably that sense in which we should understand this partnership. It's not like a business partnership, but rather this partnership that they have being united together in Christ. Now that Onesimus comes back as a, as a believer, as a brother, as a Christian. In that sense, one commentator says, if, if you can rid yourself of the associations with com- communism, then the word comrade might, might even work better here in making sense and unpacking this. So if you consider me your partner, your comrade, your, your brother, this shared faith that we have, receive him as you would receive me. Now there is an interesting conditional word at the beginning of 17. He says, so if, like, are we to understand that like, if you're really a Christian, Philemon, Paul writes, well, wait, if, if this is a reality or if it's not a reality, is that what he's saying? No, he's not saying that. Clearly, clearly the reality is true. Clearly Philemon loves the Lord based on everything we've rather said, but rather this conditional statement of if should be seen in light of this. Rather, the ball is now in your court, Philemon, to do this, to receive him back as you would receive me. Now that statement, receive him back as you would receive me, has serious cultural implications. Serious cultural implications. This is what I mean by that. It's already pretty crazy to think that slaves were killed for far lesser things than what Onesimus has done. We've, we've gone over that the last couple weeks. Slaves, have, slaves are killed in the ancient Roman world for far less things than what Onesimus has done. And he's already, up to this point, talked about receiving him back which is going to be pretty mind-blowing, not just for the people there at the local church in Colossae, but especially for the non-believers who live in that city, especially for the fellow slave owners. They're like, wait, you're just going to forgive him? Actually, I'm going to receive him back as I would someone like Paul. I'm going to receive him back like I would a freed man. I'm going to receive him back like I would an honored guest. Receive him as you would receive me, Paul instructs Philemon. That's amazing. It's amazing because people don't do that in this world. Onesimus pulls this stunt on anyone else. He dies. And you're not... You're not going to do anything? I imagine how perplexed the non-believers in Colossae, especially the other slaveholders, must have thought when they see this story. Wait, hey, yo, Philemon, was, did I just see Onesimus show up? Yep. Oh, man, I bet you laid the smack down on him. Nope. Well, what? Actually, I received him as I would a freed man. I received him as I would an honored guest like Paul. Or, you know, just imagine just... Okay, I'm waiting for the punchline, and it's not coming. 
This is serious countercultural implications that arise in verse 17 with Paul's instructions. Serious countercultural implications. But that's. We, we don't do that. We don't act like that, Philemon. We don't just do that. I know. Imagine how perplexed some of these people may be. But I think therein lies the principle. Not only do we not have just some run-of-the-mill, ordinary God, we first and foremost, as we've seen this afternoon, we have a giant God who not only governs the departure of our pain, but He governs the arrival of our pain without sinning, without removing human responsibility, and still, and yet, being compassionate. Therefore, Christians... We ought to be different. That's one thing to say, oh, we'll be different. It's another to do it. Philemon's doing it. People don't do this in the ancient world. They don't just receive back a slave that wronged them. But that's the challenge that we face. I said in a small group Tuesday night, some 60 of you guys were there. I wish that, I know there's a lot of liberty people here, but I know not everyone's liberty people, but I, I wish maybe some of you could have gone to liberty when Dr. Falwell was here. Because it was a different school. And I liked the school. I went to school. Pastor Dan and I will tell you the same thing. Like, we were there when he was there. It was a different school. Different. Was. Should be different. Because we're Christians, we should be different. But so often, we're not trying to act like Philemon to go against the grain, to be countercultural. We're trying to be just like the world. We're trying to look like the world, act like the world, sound like the world. That's not the example that we see. Not here. Ah, you just, you, you wreck Onesimus when he comes back. No, you do the opposite of what the world does. Because in doing that, you're going to have such a platform for the gospel. You want a platform for the gospel? You want to make a difference for Christ? It doesn't start when we try to look just like the world, to be cool, to be hip, to be fun. It's when we're, we go against the grain. Are you like that? Are you? Are you like Philemon? Is there anything different about you for those of you who claim the name of Christ? Or are you just like everybody else there in Colossae? Just a joke. You gotta see this. He's telling him to do a radical thing, to look different, to be different, to go against the grain, to swim upstream against the current. We have a big God and that, that should impact us and how we live. And yet for so many of us, man, we just we love the world. And it's so hard to not just go with the flow. And so it takes a lot takes meditating on stories like these and it takes praying every day 
God, help me to be like Philemon. Help me to be different. Help me not to just go along with everyone else, but to be the example that you've called me to be, to live my life as if you are truly this giant God that we see portrayed in the book of Philemon. So this is what I want to do. I want the band to come up here right now, and I want to pray for us. God, we love you. And I pray that we would see you as who you are. That we would see you who you truly are. Giant and magnificent, powerful and wise beyond our imaginations. And what we think was possible or comprehensible. And that in knowing that, it wouldn't just be head knowledge, but it would affect how we live our lives. That we might be like Philemon, that we might live in this countercultural way. If the world looks in at our lives and they're like, I don't get it. <laughs> that doesn't make sense to me. If you're, gonna, you're just going to receive Onesimus back, this slave who's wronged you? No way! We kill people for far less. God, help us to be like Philemon. Help us to be and live and look differently. The world doesn't need more people like the world. They need Christians. They need Philemon's. And so I pray, as St. Augustine used to pray so many centuries ago, Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Lord, command what you will and give what you command. God, enable us to do the things that you've called and commanded us to do and to be. Enable us, empower us, help us, Jesus, to be like Philemon. Amen.